you've known for 24 hours that an unregistered wizard set magical beasts loose in New York? Yes. Where is this man? So, you're the guy with the case full of monsters, huh? Use travels first. Mr. Scrander, do you know anything about the wizarding community in America? We don't let things loose. Hey, Mr. English guy, I think your egg is hatching. You wiped his memory, right? The no magic. The what? No magic. They're not wizard. Sorry, we call them muggles. Okay, everybody, that was the trailer for Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. The story of this movie is the year is 1926, and Newt Scamander, uh, played by Eddie Redmayne, has just completed a global excursion to find and document an extraordinary array of magical creatures. Arriving in New York for a brief stopover, he might have come and gone without incident were it not for a nomage, which is the American term for muggle, named Jacob, a misplaced magical case, and the escape of some of Newt's fantastical beasts, which could spell trouble for both the wizarding and nomage worlds. The film is starring Eddie Redmayne, Catherine Waterston, Dan Fogler, Alison Sudol, Ezra Miller, Samantha Morton, John Voight, Carmen Ejogo, and Colin Farrell, directed by David Yates and written by J.K. Rowling herself. With me on this episode, I have here Will and Michael. Gentlemen, how are we? I'm doing great. Yeah, very well. Awesome. Uh, so this here is the first in um, what is a planned series of five films from Warner Brothers. It is a prequel to the Harry Potter series taking place within the same world. Hogwarts gets mentioned a couple of times in this. So, yes, it is somewhat connected. But overall, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I, I like the Harry Potter films quite dearly myself. Uh, we're actually going to be conducting a new episode of Cinema Throwdown here where we will be defending our favorite Harry Potter film. So that should be quite a bit of fun after the review. So walking into this, I had a little bit of trepidation as to whether or not I, you know, was kind of open to this film or not. I, I, you know, I mean, leave the Harry Potter series alone, I say, you know? So does this film live up to the hype? Will, I'm going to start off with you on this. What did you think of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? I would say going into the film, I am a tremendous Harry Potter fan. I grew up with the books. I adored the books. I adored the film series. I wasn't sure I wanted anyone touching the franchise, but I thought it would be interesting to have a look elsewhere at the magical universe. I also love anything that's set in kind of turn of the century, or in this case, 1920s periods, and seeing a look at the American wizarding world I thought would be fascinating. I was wary, though. I didn't love her latest book, the play form. The book form of a play didn't really slay me, and I wasn't quite sure how she was going to do without her titular characters. Ultimately, the film is not bad. It just didn't do much for me. I think the problem is it is so determined to set up an entire series that it has so many plot threads that it throws into the film and doesn't give enough attention to. It feels rushed. It feels incomplete. There's a lot of characters. I don't know why they were in the film. 
I don't know why John Voight in the newspaper subplot or in the film if that subplot is resolved easily without contributing anything to the plot. I don't know why the film felt the need to have an Avengers-style climax. Because the bottom line is the climax of the film feels like the groundwork wasn't laid for it to be there, and it feels like something straight out of every generic superhero film ever. So I guess we'll discuss more as we go into the film. But it was very flawed, and I would be lying if I didn't say I wasn't disappointed in nearly every single aspect of the film, even up to and including the visual effects and production design. All right, then. Michael, do you share the same thoughts as Will? Uh, No, I don't, actually. I happen to be a lot more positive on this film, believe it or not. Like Will, I enjoyed the Harry Potter franchise very much. I know I've become a little notorious lately for my... uh, uh, I don't want to say dislike, but, you know, I'm getting a little tired with some of these franchises like the Avengers or the Marvel Universe, the DC world. But Harry Potter was always a film franchise that I loved. The production elements were always top-notch. The performances, spectacular. The effects, just fantastic. And the story went along with it. That was not anything that was lacking. So after a five-year absence, I was very interested to see where this series would go. And in fact, not only do I think this works on its own but I think it ranks among some of the best Harry Potter films that we saw. I'd put this right after the first three films, uh, Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, and Prisoner of Azkaban. I found myself so thoroughly engaged in what was going on, and while there are a few moments here and there that feel like they're not playing a part in this film in particular, I think they're setting up this franchise that's going to be laid out over the next maybe 10 years or so, however long it takes to release all the films. So I found myself very impressed in that regard. But also, aside from the entertainment factor, it was very relevant as to what was going on in our society right now. Without going into any spoilers, there was a lot to be discussed about how the Trump administration plays a role in our society and sort of how minorities are treated, the LGBT community. I found a lot of parallels that were very interesting to look at. So, yeah, I had a great time. I enjoyed thinking about it and just recommend this to anyone who enjoyed the Harry Potter franchise or is looking for something a little smarter than the average blockbuster. Well, I would say it's it's nice that it included those parallels, though. They're not subtle. I mean, I... Yeah, but that didn't really bother me. Like, I, I could see why it might be that way to somebody, but I, I didn't think it was the point of being overbearing. Well, okay, so... I just listened to both of you give your opinions on this film, and I think possibly for the first time ever, I might be square in the middle of the two of you. I didn't hate it, and I didn't love it. I didn't hate it either. I uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's I mean, it's going to be like a B, B minus range for me. Oh, so okay. I, I mean, we'll go more into it. I just am confessing my disappointment. I think it's a very flawed film. That's fair enough, because maybe then I am the lowest of the three of you then. Um, so, I mean, because with that said, there are certain elements of this film that I do quite enjoy that I think um, Michael uh, pointed out 
and is leaning him more towards the positive end. But will I also understand and recognize that this is the beginning of uh, Warner Brothers' own Marvel Cinematic Universe in a way? And as a result, it suffers from the same exact problem. That problem is that this film is not focused on being its own thing. It is more focused on setting up the plots for future installments, which if you go back and watch the Harry Potter uh, film series, one thing that each one of those films did was it had its own self-contained story. And at the very end of the film, for like maybe the last couple of minutes, there was something that would then set up the next movie. But it didn't like spend precious screen time throughout the you know throughout the entire running time trying to do that like you said before the john void character i have no idea what his function in this movie was other than he's gonna be in the next one and somehow some way the events of this film are gonna play into the next one there is a reveal at the end where a certain very uh popular actor and i know that it's public but i don't want to spoil it for anybody that may not know is revealed at the very end of this film to be the villain. And as a result, that's going to be the other uh, thorough line throughout this series, I'm sure. And I just found that to be so distracting because... Distracting? Yeah, yeah. because... like, And also the makeup on him is cheesy looking. Um, For the short amount of time that he was in it, it really made that much of an impression. Yes. Yeah, it totally took me out of the movie in that moment. And it also undermined anything interesting about the film's villain i thought because it's essentially by doing that reduced him to just stunt casting yeah yeah i mean and generic evil villain all of a sudden any kind of complex motivation the villain might have had before that well we might get more of that in a sequel but going back to this film though i don't want to spend too much time focusing on you know the um you know the film sidetracking itself uh, to set up a sequel. I want to focus on the things that the film does do, at least right for the most part. Eddie Redmayne, Catherine Waterson, and Dan Fogler made for quite a charming trio, in my opinion. Um, Dan Fogler is so fantastic here. I really enjoyed him. He was very endearing. Uh, I I liked, actually, out of all three of them, I I really dug uh, Catherine Waterston. I, I love her. Uh, And everything that I've seen her do so far, from Inherit Vice to Steve Jobs... Now this, she's becoming one of my favorite actresses. Yeah, she, she's like a movie star. She, she's going to uh, take off pretty soon. Did it feel like they, the actors were maybe under-directed and sometimes weren't quite sure what they should be going for? I felt it odd that both Redmayne and Linny fell back into tears in multiple scenes, even where it didn't necessarily seem to call for them to cry. Just seemed to be... Their fallback was, let's fall back on crying because that's compelling, even when it didn't fit the characters. There is a uh, subplot that is brought up that is, once again, set up for a sequel to dive a little bit further into that I actually found to be the most interesting aspect to the Newt Scamander uh, character. I would agree. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing more of that, and as a result... The tears, um, no, uh, it didn't bother me. I actually will admit, though, that I did get emotional at the end of the film with Dan Fogler's uh, character arc and what happens to him at the end. I I actually got to give David Yates credit for getting me there with that that, uh, beautiful moment. Yeah, that was very sweet. 
Did the over did the abundance of CGI this time bother you guys? No, I wish it was better though. Right, because so some, not all the Harry Potter films have great CGI, but most do. Order of the Phoenix is pretty ropey CGI, as does Sorcerer's Stone. But I felt like, similar to The Hobbits and the Star Wars prequels, franchises where the original series were very reliant on practical effects and then move to CGI for almost everything end up looking worse, despite the technology having advanced, than their predecessors. I love any film set in a recreation of early 1900s New York or London or any city like that. Yet, I felt like a lot of the exterior shots, and I adore Stuart Craig, but I felt like a lot of the exterior shots felt artificial. And that made me sad because the set design has always been one of my favorite aspects of Harry Potter films. And I did feel like they just felt a little more set and just generally CGI'd. The same goes for the goblins. You know, you had very convincing goblin and house elf, well, house elf CGI, CGI, goblin work in the films with prosthetics on Warwick Davis and Vern Troyer. Whereas this time around, you have not quite convincing CGI. And I hate that because the budget was big and it's almost there, but they just kind of look off. Well, can I say what technical merits I think the film does get right, at least? I think James Newton Howard's score is pretty good, a much better than I actually thought it was going to be. See, I thought it was kind of forgettable. Really? In a, in a, in a, in a franchise that has had incredibly memorable score work in literally every film, I... I, there's very little I could find myself humming coming out of this. Well, here's the problem with that is that this film is reliant because it takes place within the Harry Potter world. It's reliant upon John Williams' older themes, and it does build and expand upon that. I don't think this film is setting out to make its own musical theme, per se. Yeah, but if you think about it, the Deathly Hallows films and Order of the Phoenix didn't really use Williams' themes either much. They created entirely new tracks. If you look at Desplat's work in the final two films, there are so many new melodies that he creates that so are were they memorable. Yes, very. I thought the um, uh, Jesus Snape's um, the Lily's theme, Lily's theme. It is that's what it was. I think that's probably the most memorable, probably from part two. Oh, I couldn't even hum you a note of any of that. Revisit any of those, uh, per- particularly the final film soundtracks. You have Lily's theme, you have Courtyard Apocalypse, you have Dragonflight, uh, and then you have uh, the the Snape scene is actually Nicholas Hooper's work from Half-Blood Prince, yeah. which is Dumbledore's Farewell being reused. Go revisit those soundtracks. They are stunning work. And I, I, I own the Fantastic Beast soundtrack. I pre-ordered it. I just was let down because, no, I didn't think it stands out. I regularly listen to and can hum the melodies from all of the films except for Order of the Phoenix. And even that has one or two great tracks. This, and I love James Newton Howard. He's so good. And this is competent, but I was expecting something memorable. All right. Well, how about this one then? Um, The sound mixing, particularly in the final act of the film with the, um, what the hell do they call that thing? The Obscurial? Yes. 
Yeah, I thought the sound mixing in that was pretty freaking stellar and was really creative. Yeah, I saw it in IMAX and uh, throughout the film. I mean, there were times it was so loud, not to a fault, like it, it was very well mixed. But it was so loud, I found myself like covering my ears at times when uh, it was going through the city. Like there were some very effective moments. One also with uh, Samantha Morton's character. I won't say anything that happened. Oh yeah, but I think you both know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the sound was so loud that uh, made my theater lose power for about five minutes. Jesus. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't because of the sound, obviously, but uh, it was just quite the moment for it to happen during. And let's not forget, you know, everyone thinks about the big loud climax, but the sound in little moments in the film worked very well. I would say when the plates are flying through the air in the dinner scene, the sound effects that plates make spinning in the air was stunning. The clink clanks of metal coins and gold bullion, the shattering of crystals in a jewelry store. The sound design is spectacular. That is, uh, it's a shame that I don't think it'll make it into Oscar consideration, that category, because the sound categories are already stacked. But I, I will agree. I think that the sound design in this film was some of the best the franchise has had. What did we think of Colin Farrell's storyline with Ezra Miller? Uh, it felt undercooked. I loved Ezra Miller, but I think he worked better with Samantha Morton, who I thought really was great here. The Colin Farrell stuff sort of, uh, say I want to word this without giving anything away, uh, was interesting until it wasn't. Yes. But I don't necessarily consider that a fault because it's revealed to be something a little bit more. I, I mean, listen, we could talk about this off air, but I, I was just confused the entire time. I had no idea what they were talking about. I had no idea what Colin Farrell was trying to get at. It, it just... It was completely over my head, and I think it showed J.K. Rowling's uh, her inexperience as a screenwriter, personally. I wouldn't say I didn't get it. I, I, I got it. It just felt undercooked. Both characters' motivations, to be honest. And the conclusion it led to between them felt rushed and tacked on. Agreed. What do we think of... And I know we touched upon the the trio, the charmable trio, as I'm calling them. But what do we think of Eddie Redmayne? Charming. He was good. Yeah, because I'm not particularly his biggest fan. And I did like him in this. I just was wondering if you guys felt similar about him. Do you guys typically like him? Do you not like him? I like him very much. Yeah, I, um, I do think he is an actor who is very showy and obvious in that he's acting but i like his performances i know in the film community there are many people who don't like his win for the theory of everything i've only seen that film once but i thought it was a very deserving win um i have plenty of problems with the danish girl yeah i'm not as crazy about the danish girl but that's for other reasons i think he yeah i i do put those more on the script than on him yeah he put in everything he could it's just the more the politics behind everything in that performance. Yeah, he's he's, and I, I liked him a lot in Les Mis. I think yeah, he's, I think Les Mis is my favorite of his. Jupiter Ascending is my favorite. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, I create life. No, I actually I actually found him to be so likable in this because I mean at the end of the day he's like an animal rights activist in this. How can you not like him? He's so likable, you know. 
And that blue coat is just badass. I'm wondering if we're looking at a costume design nomination just because of uh, how memorable that blue coat is, honestly. Yeah, I think costume design is a lock because, first of all, Colleen Atwood, legend. Enough, enough said. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, that, uh, the costumes in this. Yeah, there, there are some very great costumes here. Even in like the clubs that they go into with the goblins, some of that is very creative. Uh, and also, quickly, Allison Sudolph. I spent the whole film thinking that was Rachel Weisz. Really? She does look a bit similar. Because what happened was I saw the trailers and everything, and she doesn't have any speaking lines. So I'm just looking at her, and I go, oh, well, Rachel Weisz is in everything this year. And I didn't think anything of it. So then when she comes on screen, I'm going, oh, well, she does this. She sounds a lot younger than she has recently. She's doing this amazing accent, and just I never knew her voice could go like that. Hmm. And I'm just thinking, look at this. You have a movie with... Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, it's a lobster reunion here. And I'm going on just thinking it's her. And then I see the credits. I'm like, where's her name? Is she coming last? Is she getting a end credit or a with credit? And she's nowhere to be found. I'm like, oh my god, that wasn't her. So, But I thought Alison Sudol was charming, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I thought she and Waterston were both charming. And Dan Fogler, I mean, you know, Michael, you said before how great he is in this. I really appreciate that we got our first real human character in the Harry Potter series to kind of like see the lens through. Um, uh, 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 because, you know, the problem, and I and I wrote about this a little bit with the Harry Potter films uh, compared to this, is that we got to see all the magic and the wonder and the amazement through the eyes of children who were being exposed to a lot of this for the first time ever. And we're also growing up with those children. Now we are dealing with adults, and we're adults now, but it's a lot harder for us to have that same wonder and amazement. So what does what do they have to do? They have to introduce a human character that they call him a nomad in this or a muggle, if you will. And so we kind of have to see the story through his eyes with that fantastic element. And I think that, especially if you're familiar with this series and you're not new to it i think that that's really really hard to kind of take hold of again like it was when we were younger i don't think it hits that nostalgic factor as well as i had hoped that it was going to i would definitely agree what do we think about so we all agree the performances are generally pretty good uh what do we think about the cinematography i thought it was uninspired i found it to be dull and dark and i didn't I I didn't I did not walk away from this film taking away the cinematography at all. Yeah, because there were a few very striking shots. I thought there were some moments it was very well shot, but I was a little bit surprised because Yates had proved to be a strong visual director, and he certainly got better as his films went on. But Half Blood Prince and uh, Deathly Hallows Part One, particularly, are stunning films. I agree. And I, I, was, I was a little surprised. There's a lot of opportunity in this setting to be very visually stimulating. And you're right. It, it did not stand out for the most part. Well, you know what? We got four more films to go, more to expand upon. Yeah, I thought it was respectable cinematography. It was nothing that I left thinking about. Yeah, it wasn't bad. But I can't criticize anything necessarily. Shout out, I thought the creatures were extremely cute. I really enjoyed the creatures. Yeah, especially the baby Groot ripoff. <laughs> I like the one in the beginning uh, who goes into the bank. That was my favorite, the platypus one. Yeah. And then the, uh, I thought the little sloth thing was really cute too. <laughs> yeah, they, they were very cute. I feel like they're going to make a fortune on merchandise for that. Oh, well, now we know where where we can find them. To do. Oh my goodness. Oh god, you should leave. 
Well, that's what we are going to do right now. We are going to stop this review right now. So, Michael, final thoughts. Great out of 10. Oscar potential. Fantastic beasts and where to find them. Go. Look, I recognize that there are a few little flaws here and there that we've touched upon. And look, it's setting up a franchise. We'll see how it works in the scheme of things later on. But for what it was, and in terms of just my enjoyment of it, I had a blast here. I liked the darker elements, like I said. Some of it feels a little Dickensian. And it made me entertained while still thinking about stuff that's going on today. I really couldn't ask much more than that in a blockbuster, given today's standards. Call me crazy here, but I'm going big on this one. I'm giving Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them a 9. Wow. Top 5? Top 10? Where, where does it rank for you right now? About 15. All righty. And as far as Oscar potential goes, anything else you want to cover that we didn't cover? Oscars, I think this will get nominated for production design, costume design, visual effects, and possibly sound. All right, then. Will. So, yeah, I sounded very harsh on the film, but I just thought it was worth pointing out certain flaws I found in the film or certain issues I had with the film. That being said, it's still a decent time. I respect the effort to make a blockbuster that has a little more character than a lot of the ones out there right now. It does go for some social commentary, and it's an enjoyable time. We'll give it a good 6.5. As far as Oscar chances go, I think production design, though it didn't feel quite as impressive to me as previous Potter films, was still good. And I, I adore Stuart Craig. I desperately hope he wins for a Potter film one day. He more than deserves it. Um, I think production design is a possibility. I think, though, I found I wasn't floored by the visual effects. It might get in for visual effects. And maybe costume design. I'm not predicting it right now. I think that's probably the extent of where it goes. Alrighty. Well, for me, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is an okay film. It's not a particularly great film. It is enjoyable in some aspects. Um, and it's a bit confusing and unfulfilling in many others. I feel like the cast is charming, while a lot of the sub-characters are just underwritten, underdeveloped, and underused, and I just don't really understand why they're there to begin with. And maybe upon future sequels, I'll kind of, you know, look back and go, oh, okay. But this is kind of setting the bar very, very low, uh, which I think is possibly a good thing, as I feel that other uh, films in this series have now a lot to improve upon. So maybe they'll get better as they go. Or this could be the start of a new Hobbit trilogy for me, where uh, this is just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. I... Oh my gosh, I, I, I thought I was going to be in the middle, but I'm the lowest. I'm giving it a 5 out of 10. So, Oscar potential though, I think that this has a shot in, call me crazy, call me crazy, but I'm still going to say original score, I'm going to say costume design, production design, and sound mixing. Visual effects, I personally don't think it deserves to be there, but I feel like people might just check it off because... Why not? You know, maybe it will be fresh in people's minds. And I will also finally say this. I know I'm throwing a lot of criticism at this movie. I know I don't sound like I'm the nicest individual right now when it comes to uh, respecting J.K. Rowling and her work. But 
if you are completely obsessed with Harry Potter and you love this universe and you think that J.K. Rowling can do no wrong, well, guess what? You will probably love the shit out of this film. So don't take my word for it. You know, go go just see it anyway and make up your own damn mind. It, but for the most part here, I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm in the majority. A lot of my friends have seen this movie and they said they absolutely loved it. So with that said, let's move over to something that we do care about. And that is defending our favorite Harry Potter film. We are going to head into Cinema Throwdown where myself, Will, and Michael will each pick a film from the Harry Potter series. And we will debate and we will argue as to which of those films is the best. And hopefully with your comments, your votes... We can then figure it out. So let's head into Cinema Throwdown. From now on, we are enemies. You and I. Okay, so we're each going to pick a Harry Potter film, and we are going to say our piece on it, and we're going to figure out which one of these three is the best. Michael, um, which one do you have? Then, Will, you say yours, and I'll say mine. Michael? Yeah, so I'm going to go with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the first film in the franchise. Alrighty, and Will? I'm going to be going with what I think many people will agree with me is the best film, which is The Prisoner of Azkaban. And I'm going to go with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2, the only Harry Potter film to ever make my top 10 at the end of a year. So, with that said, who wants to start first? Mike is the first film. Why don't you go first? You want me to go first since it's the first one? Go ahead. Okay, first film in the franchise. So, I should start off by saying I really do like all eight films in the series. I think uh, fourth might rank the lowest for me. Just I think it's a little... I don't know, it feels like it's its own thing, even though it's setting up the next chapter. But when it comes to setting up not just the next chapter, but an entire franchise, the first is really the one to go back to. I think it captures this new feeling of a universe building that doesn't feel overwhelming. You get the sense that you're going into this new world, but it's it's inviting you in in a calming way. It's not throwing it all in your face at the same time. It's the most magical and I'm trying to think of the word to describe it. Childish and dated. Yeah, no. Yes, dated. yes, no, no, it totally no. is. It falls right into that wheelhouse of E.T., The Wizard of Oz, a classic child film that's not just for children. It's the magical aspect of it really transports you in a way. I think the John Williams score, as we were talking about earlier, is iconic, which sort of is used in different variations throughout the franchise. The children, for being as young as they were, are wonderful, and I'm not always the biggest fan of child performers, but they really hold their own here. And even, like, Richard Harris as uh, Dumbledore uh, sets up Alan Rickman as Snape, Maggie Smith. All these great performers are just introduced here. And it lays the groundwork for the work that they're going to be doing later in the franchise. I mean, you can't have great work later on without setting up this first chapter to lay out our expectations. So I'm going to stick with the first one. Nope. You're really not a fan of this, are you? In, uh, In retrospect, dude, it's like... Yeah, nah, it's it's like second worst in the series for me, honestly. You know what? I almost wanted to say Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, a film that I actually didn't like the first time I saw it, and I still have my issues with it, but what really stands out to me there is 
Amelda Staunton's performance. Oh yeah, she's great in that. Which I think is remarkable. She's one of our finest actresses working today, in my opinion. Well, for that reason alone, I will say that Order of the Phoenix is better than The Sorcerer's Stone. So boo, boo on you. Will, can you do better? Mm. Alright, so yeah, I would say that Prisoner of Azkaban, if for no other reason, gets a lot of credit for probably making the franchise into something that could be a viable success beyond the first two films. Chris Columbus was a good choice to get the franchise started and give it kind of a childlike sense of innocence, but there wasn't a lot of creativity that to, to that direction or to that telling of the story. I love the first two films, I think they're a lot of fun. But they're kids' movies. Alfonso Cuarón really grows up the story. Not only does he grow up the story, he does more than that. He makes a film that is a small book and a small story many would argue feels insignificant, yet in the case of the film, feels huge. It's very self-contained as its own story. But more than that, it works on its own, not just as an adaptation of the book, but really as just a great overall film. It's it's a film more so than the previous two that kids and adults can enjoy because it really shows a lot of creativity in filmmaking that as much as I love the whole franchise, I can't say we see in the other seven films. I guess for starters, the film has an atmosphere, a very palpable sense of dread that you don't get in the other films because often they're so dedicated to following the source material rigidly, they don't necessarily focus on atmosphere. So you have all these ominous shots through the windows into the, the rain, kind of swooping out on vast open spaces in Scotland. You have those shots of the carriages being pulled through the mud as people sing double double toil and trouble in the background. You, you have him reworking both the castle and character design. The castle becomes a little more ominous and spacious and lonely than it did in previous films. You have Flitwick getting a slightly less ridiculous design. You have scenes shot in snow. You have an attention to detail and nature. But you also have this impeccable balance of darkness and humor. It is definitely a much darker film in the series, but its humor and light moments also often work better than do they do in the previous films, which generally were more light-hearted overall. You have the kids actually looking like kids. They can dress in more than robes and uniforms. And I think what's interesting is it's the first time they actually really make it look fun to be a wizard. Yeah, I think they, they took for granted in the first two films that it would be cool to be a wizard, but all of a sudden, you have this look at the various candies that can make you roar like a lion. You just have a look at the kids having fun together as wizards. Then you have some of the best work of the entire franchise in the music end, with particularly two tracks, Window to the Past and also Buckbeak's Flight, which are stunning, stunning tracks to listen to. You have some series best CGI. The Dementors never looked as good as they did in this particular film and follow-up films. Buckbeak's CGI still stands up today. Um, Sirius Black's introduction is handled splendidly. It's the only film in the series where Lupin really gets to show and grow as a character. The film accidentally laid the groundwork for realizations about Snape later on in the franchise, without even realizing it. I can go on and on, but it's an atmospheric film. 
It's got some of the series' best cinematography, best CGI, best score work. It stands alone. It is splendid. And it's also one of the only times where Michael Gambon really felt like Dumbledore. He's not screaming at the cast members like he does later on. He feels magical. He feels more like Richard Harris. You know, it is so good. I am going to tell you right now, there is no way that this film is the best in visual effects, best in music, and there's absolutely no way that this is also um, as big of a game changer in terms of the plot. Not much happens in Prisoner of Azkaban, in my opinion. It's the, it, oh my no. goodness. It is the introduction. Wait, wait, wait. Time out for one no, second. No, we're not taking a time out. After I just defended Sorcerer's Stone, I have to say, the only reason I didn't defend Prisoner of Azkaban is because Will picked it before I did. Oh, please. Please. I mean, as much as I do love Sorcerer's Stone, far and away is everything Will just described there. I know I'm jumping off my own ship here for a second, but I just got to defend everything he says. No! And just express love for both films here. Well, yes, you know what? If yes. both of you are going to gang up on me, I'll, I'll take it on because Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2 is the emotional climax of this story that brings everything full circle, including the Snape arc, which you alluded to before, Will, in one of the most heartbreaking and also most beautiful sequences in the entire series that had people, many people, saying that Alan Rickman, may he rest in peace, get an Oscar nomination potentially for this film. He was that good. We also get significant screen time with Ray Fiennes in this film as uh, Voldemort, who really finally emerges as the villain, and we get that showdown we've been waiting for so long between him and Harry Potter. We see the other kids like uh, Neville Longbottom uh, really come into his own as a hero in this film. You just have so many good, feel great, awesome, kick-ass moments in this movie. And then on top of all of that, You've got the amazing work by Alexandra Desplat, which I think is better than um, John Williams' work in Prisoner of Azkaban, Will. I'm, I'm sorry, but as far as the original themes go and everything that he did in uh, Sorcerer's Stone, maybe I'll give the edge to you there a little bit, Michael, but I think Desplat's work here is fantastic. Eduardo Serra, who did the cinematography for Part 1 and Part 2 of uh, Deathly Hollows, had a really, really tough task with Part 2 in that he had to somehow make the film darker and the darkest of all the films, yet somehow it's like at a certain point the series had kind of like peaked, I think, in terms of darkness with Half-Blood Prince, and it became something like, how the hell are these films going to get any more atmospheric, any more moody, any more darker? Well, like you said before, Will, uh, Part 1, Deathly Hollows, it's got some of the most stunning visuals, and I think actually Part 2 continues that. So I think that there is actually better visuals in Deathly Hollows than there are in The Prisoner of Azkaban, for sure. So I don't know what you guys are talking about. I, I think that this film packs not only a tremendous emotional punch, but it's also non-stop throughout the entire film. We don't need an extended long running time for this movie. It's 130 minutes. It's the shortest one in the series. It wastes no time in getting the action going. And as a result, it's the most engaging film in the entire series. Boom. I like it very much. Like in everything you said, the uh, battle sequences and the showdown, all that. But I feel like as entertaining as it is, it's all candy. I feel like there's not 
Even that Snape scene aside, there's not that extra little mile that pushes something like Order of the Phoenix or Sorcerer's Stone into that territory that makes it extra great. Wait, 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 hold on. Harry Potter coming to the realization that he has to ultimately sacrifice himself to defeat Lord Voldemort, that isn't... That, that isn't that kind of a moment for you? It's a big battle, but I mean, there's not that other stuff to pad it out and make it, like... I think it is a film that only really gets to do character work on Harry Potter himself in Snape. I which mean, it's an ending. That's what it is. It feels like a big ending. Yeah, it, it is only half a movie at the, at the end of the day. I think this is the only time splitting a film, a book in half, worked, but I will say, it doesn't feel complete as a film entirely. It feels more complete than the first half did. But it, only, it does kind of only feel like half a film. It's a great half a film. It's probably my second favorite in the series. But I think that does need to be said. And it doesn't... While it gets to give its characters uh, a lot of witty quips here and there, you know, Neville gets some fun lines, McGonagall gets to do some fun things, it doesn't get to do that much with a lot of its characters. Whereas the previous films had gotten to grow and develop these characters a lot. I think it also needs to be mentioned that as far as an adaptation goes, um, there is more plot, as you pointed out, in The Deathly Hallows to work with. As an adaptation, it was probably easier to make feel significant, whereas The Prisoner of Azkaban is a relatively minor book that, through the adaptation, the filmmakers managed to make feel bigger than it is. You know, you also have to... You're talking about emotional moments. Snape's moment is extremely emotional. But how about the fact that Deathly Hallows Part 2 decides to deal with nearly all of its major character deaths off screen? And you can't even say that it's just because they happen in the book. Because in the book, Fred's death was one of the most emotional parts of the novel for me. And instead, it's just a quick, oh, we see one of the Weasleys is dead. You don't get any time to linger on that. That was a devastating moment in the book that they just kind of threw off in the Yeah, film. but I'm also the Loop kind of person it. that does never, I never, ever, ever watch a movie and compare it to the book. I take the movie on its own terms, and in the movie, that character was an inconsequential character that didn't matter much. Really? Yeah. Oh. The Weasleys, even in the films, I would argue, were They had up. funny and moments about- where they acted like idiots and everybody laughed. Ha, 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 we're twins and we make jokes, you know? And so we, one of them died. Okay. Okay, how about Lupin? How about Lupin? Lupin was a significant carried character. Yeah, and yeah, and, and number three, like you alluded to before, and David Fulis does do a great job with him in that third film, but in all the sequels after that, they could not have tried more to make him as insignificant as he was in one and two where he didn't exist. He's still a major character, and I feel like for what they gave him in three, he deserved more than an off-screen death. And I would argue... <laughs> Maybe they're just comic relief, but the Weasley twins, I think, deserved more. I mean, they had a presence. Yeah, they they did. That was a that is a significant emotional blow. They give Lavender Brown more of a death scene than Fred Weasley gets, who is one of the most beloved supporting characters in the series. You know, guys, I, guys, let's be real. The reason why we all love Deathly Hallows Part Two is because Mama Weasley has that alien callback line of, get away from my daughter, you Not bitch. Not my daughter, you bitch. <laughs> that is pretty great. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it's a, it's a very fun movie. The only 
thing, uh, aside from maybe like a lack of substance, that really uh, turns me off about it is the finale. Oh, the epilogue? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I hated that in the book, and I hated it in the film. You know, the, the old age makeup in the film looked... Well, that's what got me. I, I went to a midnight showing of this when it came out. It's the only midnight show I've ever been to. And sold out, of course. It was playing in like all 10 theaters, or 10 auditoriums at this theater. And when that comes on at the very end, the audience just burst out into laughter. I mean, honestly, I know they wanted to adhere to the book, but I think it would have been nice if they had ended him on the bridge, dropping the... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, he, uh... I know, I'm not going to compare it to the book. You know, we're not going to do that here. But I think they had a better ending. I know they wanted to stick to the book and keep that epilogue, but I found that unnecessary and distracting. Largely because the movie. A book schmuck. Yeah. Just give me a good damn movie. That's all I want. No, and it, it is it is a very good film. I think it's probably the the be, the second oh, best. You almost said best. But it does you almost lack. said best. No, Prisoner of Azkaban is just goes well above and beyond the franchise. There is a lot of meat there. There really is. I mean, like I think it. I'm not going to say saved, but I think it made the franchise what the legendary franchise that it would go on to become. Well, let me ask you a question. Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, or Return of the King? Fellowship. See, I'm, I'm Return of the King. Because to me, how you end is the most important aspect of any story you're trying to tell. Period. End of story. Nail them with a good ending, and they will give you applause. That is why Deathly Hollows Part 2 is the best in the series. Because it could not have given us a more rapturous ending than to have the entire movie, the entire 130 minutes function as an ending. Also, can I say, I'm so pissed that Stuart Craig never won. You know, and if, if Hugo hadn't come out that year with great production design, I think Stuart Craig would have won for his work in Deathly Hallows Part 2 because the way he destroyed Hogwarts, and I thought, it, I, I, I thought it was clever adding in little things like the Hogwarts Boathouse. We never considered that, but adding that in for Snape's final scene, I thought that was nice. Yeah. I'm looking at his nominations here. It looks like Harry Potter films received four production design nominations over the years, uh, and seeing what they lost to. Yeah, the first one was Sorcerer's Stone, which lost to Moulin Rouge. I mean, come on. Goblet of Fire. Yeah, Goblet of Fire lost to Memoirs of a Geisha. Mm, okay. Uh, King Kong was also nominated that year. I think King Kong should have won that year. And then Memoirs. just uh, and then just the final two films for production design, right? Yeah, which uh, lost to Alice in Wonderland. Really. And Hugo. And, uh, yeah. Hugo totally deserving. And yeah, Hugo, deserving. absolutely. All right, so the Alice in Wonderland year, you give it to Stuart Craig. I would yeah. give it to the King's Speech, I think. No, but th 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 that's beside the point. Yeah, but uh, four nominations, you know what? It, it's just about who you're nominated against sometimes. Oh, I know. It's just it's just disappointing because... It's the Roger Deakins effect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we can agree. His set design over the years... I mean, I, I, Stuart Craig is a large part of why that franchise is so good. Absolutely. Well... Let's leave it up to the readers to decide here. Obviously, we could find common similarities between all the films as to what it is that we like about all of them. But at the end of the day here, here on Cinema Throwdown, we want to uh, pass it off to you, our dear listeners. Which of the three films that we mentioned here, The Sorcerer's Stone, Prisoner of Azkaban, or The Deathly Hallows Part Two, which one of these three do you feel is the best Harry Potter film? Drop us a comment anywhere you find this podcast, or you can also let us know on the polls of next 
nextbestpicture.com. Guys, I want to thank you very much for this fun style of debate. I will definitely go back into my more civil, very calm, peaceful nature. And with that said... Ah, it means he realized he's been defeated. Hey, 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 I haven't been defeated. Now I'm going to go back into pissed off mode. Are you kidding me right now? (laughs) All right, guys. Well, with that said, uh, Michael, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at MikeMovie. And Will, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at MaverickSmovies. And you can find me at nextbestpicture.com. As I said before, everybody, drop us a comment. Feel free to also drop us a review on iTunes. Feel free to share some feedback with us. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We are the members of the Next Best Picture podcast. We really appreciate you listening to our review of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And also fighting amongst ourselves over which Harry Potter film we think is the best. Feel free to let us know what you think as well. And we will see you all next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.